0: find your way to your seats. I'm going to, I want to open with a scripture today. Um, This scripture is a really important scripture. Happened way before the birth of Christ. But uh, this scripture is really interesting. Last night, Shelly and I had the opportunity. Uh, Our boys were in Handel's Messiah down at Olivet Nazarene University. And there's a, there's a particular song, I'm not going to sing it for you, that's in the middle of all of this. But it picks up in this theme from Isaiah chapter 9. And it's just this beautiful choral part of Handel's Messiah in between all the arias and solos and different things like that. But I want to read this for you. You'll see it on the screen. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder for... As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, be fuel for the fire. And if you can imagine violins, then some timpani, boom, 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 for unto us a (speaking) child (speaking) is. No, okay, that's all right. uh, It's all right. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So during Advent, we're we're looking at four words, which is fairly common. These are kind of designated words at Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love, uh, which sounds really Christmassy. Hope and peace and joy and love. Uh, a few years ago, I realized probably way back like in 2016 or 2017, my, my preaching during the Advent season leading up to Christmas changed. I'm not sure exactly what changed in my mind or in my heart, but and maybe it's because every year you preach kind of the same thing during Christmas season. I really realized that I was not really digging deeper into the story or the narrative of Christmas, Um, I realized my preaching then kind of shifted. It became a little less hallmark and maybe a little grittier, a little earthier, I guess. Uh, In fact, a couple of years ago, somebody I worked with said uh, that my take on Christmas was depressing. So in their words, we need more ho, 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 a little less whoa, 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 rich. (laughs) And I'm like, yo, yo, yo. So I was like, here we go, here we go. Now, the truth is, and and, and here's the deal, there's some important things that are missed uh, at Advent if you don't unwrap some stuff, if you don't dive beneath the surface of the wrapping paper and the lights and all that stuff. And one of those things has to do with this word that we look at today, this idea of peace. We talk about this Prince of Peace. When we talk about peace coming into the world, coming into our lives at this Advent season, that word is a, it's a tricky word. Now, we'll get to that here in a second, because sometimes in our desire to keep the lights bright, you know, the air cheery, we kind of sweeten up the Christmas narrative. I mean, it is a sweet story. We decorate, and everything looks soft, and has a glow to it, and it feels good, and there's a lot of weird fibrous snow in the Middle East, which makes no sense whatsoever. And I mean, we, we do all of that stuff because we just like that general feeling. We like that. I want the warm, fuzzy feelings as much as anybody else. I want those touch points where I'm like, oh yeah, remember that? When we look back, Shelley and I were looking at, a, at an ornament that came from my parents. Who knows, but in 1976, my, my grandma's boyfriend <laughs> gave it to our family and it was kind of one of those you know, those touch points. I want those too. I like those warm, fuzzy feelings. I really do. Um, but Advent... The season of Advent is preparing for when Jesus, the source of hope, we talked about this last week, Advent is the season when we prepare for the source of hope to come again, Jesus Christ. So that, that was the first Advent 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ was born, but we are living in an Advent time right now. Jesus has promised to come again, to come again. And so we're in that preparation. So decorating trees and eating cookies, which I'm not opposed to whatsoever, okay? Not opposed to those things, but they're insufficient. They're insufficient to prepare you and prepare me for the coming of a Savior, okay? So we have to dig a little deeper. So if it's okay, even if it's not okay, (laughs) I'm going to do it anyway, but uh, some of what we talk about during Advent is not all shimmery and bright. It just isn't. What does that have to do with peace? Why are we talking about that in this idea of peace? Well, I don't think any of us would argue that we need more peace in the world. I don't know about anybody else. I'm tired. I'm really tired. Um, medical professionals. Uh, more recently, you hear, it, hear about it more, but they've coined a phrase called crisis fatigue. Have you ever heard of that? Crisis fatigue. So like the last three years, uh, wars, threats of wars, pandemics, divisions politically, racially, religiously, divisions, divisions within families, over those things, divisions within churches, over those things. I'm gonna bet that there's people in this room that have lost a Facebook friend, because, you know, those are the best of friends. (laughs) Lost a Facebook friend, or you've maybe even lost a family relationship where it's not gonna look the same as it did before because of some of the divisions and the problems and the lack of peace and the lack of agreement and the heightened disagreement and divisions because of those things. All of that takes place, and people are tired. I'm tired of it. I don't know about you. I'm tired. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, and that means everything as it should be, which sounds like a total pipe dream. (laughs) The idea that everything could be placed exactly as it was intended as it should be. No divisions, none of that stuff. But there is this idea that there is coming a Savior, as described in Isaiah 9, who will set things straight, who will cause wars to cease, who will cause divisions to be no more. There will, there will be no wall of separation between anybody. All of those des- decisions, all those divisions will be eliminated. There's going to come one who will set all things right, the Prince of Peace that sounds pretty good to me. I like the idea of that. I want you to think about your own life right now. Is is everything as it should be in your life? Think about your job, your health, your family. Think about your relationships. Is everything as it should be? A promised Prince of Peace sounds pretty good. One that would restore all of that. Wars ceasing, inequities in the world being erased, relationships restored, experiencing hope, joy, and love in a way that you can experience because without peace, it's pretty hard to experience those things. But there's a problem with peace. So here's the problem: there's an author's name Sky Jatani, and uh, he tells about how back in 1999, somebody stole the baby out of the manger the baby jesus out of the manger that was in the nativity split display at daily plaza in chicago somebody stole the baby jesus statue out of the the, the manger so baby jesus was found by the police in a bus station which is like the opening line of a really bad joke or something <laughs> baby jesus was found by the police at a bus station so baby jesus was returned and the police and the people who run daily plaza they came up with a solution they cabled they put cable over baby Jesus in the manger, so that nobody would take baby Jesus out again. But then in 2003, a college student stole baby Jesus again. So when they got baby Jesus back, they implemented a new, and this is what Sky Jatani writes, I don't know if it's true, I didn't look it up. But Sky Jatani writes that now there is a God squad. Literally that's what they're called. So at Christmas there's a God squad that has put in place very secretive measures for the security to make sure that baby Jesus stays in the manger. I share that because I don't know that anything seems more peaceful, and it's a little contradictory, particularly if you've had newborns, but it seems that there's nothing more peaceful than this idea of a baby Jesus asleep in a a manger, asleep in a manger with golden fleece diapers. It's not in the Bible. That's That's Ricky Bobby. I'm just making sure you guys are still with me here. Okay, all right. If you don't know what that is, don't look it up. Um, But serious, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? I mean, there's these gentle, right, peaceful songs that we sing about this scene that takes place in that manger. It sounds sweet, right? sounds peaceful. Even as a non-baby Jesus, though, sometimes our imagery of Jesus is a little sanitized, okay? First of all, I didn't know if you knew, but all Jewish people in the Middle East are white, evidently. Okay, so we, we tend to over-sanitize all kinds of different things, and this is one of those. He's slightly a dreamy character, you know? I, I don't know about you, but some of the movies and all kinds of stuff, you see Jesus walk around very slowly, Like just very, he's going to take flight at any second, patting children on their heads and it's all very peaceful and slow and gentle and all those kinds of different things. And here's the deal, when you keep Jesus in a manger, that's what you get. That's what you get. Jesus gets domesticated a little bit. Uh, just like our Christmas does. We've domesticated Christmas a bit. Yeah. So, what happens? What happens when Jesus grows up? What happens when Jesus kind of wiggles his way out of the narrative we like to feel and see during Christmas time? You get verses like Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Somebody let Jesus out of the manger. How does this work? I mean, we're told he's the Prince of Peace, but yet he says, don't, don't get confused. I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. So, how does that work? This is the same Jesus who, when he was born, shepherds were out in the fields, and an angel shows up and declares, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace and goodwill toward men. So, the declaration is that this one is coming to bring peace. But then we have grown up man Jesus <laughs> saying he didn't come to bring peace. So what are we supposed to do with that? How, do, how does that go together? Is it possible that we misunderstand how the prince of peace actually brings peace about, not just in our world, but in our lives too, in our lives? See, in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus said that, he had just called all of his disciples to follow him, this motley crew of people that he had gathered together, and he pulls them together, and he says, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. You guys have been with me for a bit, and you've heard what I'm saying, you've heard what I'm teaching, you hear what I'm about, uh, so here's what's going to happen. We're going to send you guys out. You guys are going to go on a little mission. You're going to go share in the villages and the neighborhoods and all this stuff, tell them about me, tell them about the love of God, tell them, tell them about redemption, being at hand, and then touch them, heal them, you know, do, do some stuff. Go out there and minister to people and tell them this message, this message of Jesus. But then he says, all right, now, first, guys, I know you're super excited. Peter, calm down. Peter would have been the one. He was, like, out the door already. Here's the deal you're going to say some stuff and you're going to get a little surprised because there's going to be some people that aren't going to like what you say. There are going to be some people who when they hear you say some of the things that I've been saying, they're going to freak out. In fact, some of them will probably want you just to leave. Like they will kick you out of their little village or their little neighborhood because they will not want to hear what you have to say. They will not to see what you have to do. And And in fact you may even be persecuted, you may even be threatened because of my message, because of me. He warns those disciples. Now, this is actually a really important lesson for us at Christmas, in a world that is literally saturated with a lack of peace, and many times a church world that's saturated in a lack of unity, of oneness, of peace, we actually see, I think in this, how to experience peace, but even maybe be a part of being peacemakers ourselves. So first, when Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword, he was, we just need to get this out of the way. He was not literally saying, I brought me a sword, go get it out of my box. That's not what he was, he didn't bring a sword. He did not bring a sword. Nowhere in the Gospels do we see Jesus say, all right guys, arm up and go out and cut them down. Never, never, At no point does he say that. Unfortunately, there are populations of Christians who like to literalize this over the centuries. And it's been passages like this, misinterpreted and used, that have caused more, ha- more harm than can even be described. Okay? In fact, much to the disappointment and evidently the perceptions of some people, he actually advocates the complete opposite. And he models that in his life. He told us to love our enemies. And then he did it. Then he loved his enemies. He forgave those nailing him to a cross. Peter, this very sporadic, can't get his mind in order, and all this kind of, you know, just total reactionary individual, pulls out a sword to cut off a soldier's ear who's threatening Jesus. he does it. Jesus heals the guy, and says, Peter, knock it off. Put your sword away. What are you doing? This is not what we're about. So Jesus is decidedly nonviolent. He's decidedly nonviolent. So then what do you do with this sword language? What do you do with this idea that we have this promised prince of peace, but then, in this crucial moment, declares, I didn't come to ring it. I brought a sword. I brought a sword. Again, the Hebrew word for peace is Shalom. And it it is more than the absence of war, it's more than the absence of violence. If you're lacking peace in your life right now, it's more than just the absence of pain and suffering and struggle. It's more than that. Shalom means complete, it means whole. It means fulfilled fully. Everything as it was intended and should be, when everything is one. That sound familiar? Go back to Matthew 10. So he just told his disciples that when they share his message, they're gonna be persecuted. There's gonna be some people that don't like what you have to say. And there's a reason they did not like what Jesus' message was all about. Didn't like what the disciples had to say or what they were doing. It was a threat to people's loyalties. What Jesus was about was a threat to their loyalties, their allegiances, their traditions. Their religious systems, it was a threat to the religious system of the day. It was a threat to their politics and more. What Jesus is saying when he's saying, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. What Jesus is saying is he came to divide people, listen closely, he came to divide people from the peace that they'd made with the patterns of this world. Are you following me there? So he came to divide. He is that sword. His message is that sword that divides people like you and I from the peace that we've made with things that are illegitimate, with things that do not fit the bill. Have you ever made peace in your life with some things that are less than what God would have you make peace with? I have. I have. Oh, it's just always going to be that way. Or I'm not perfect, so you can't expect me to be this and this and this, or this or this. We kind of settle. We make peace with certain things. What Jesus is saying is radical, and it would be good to remember, and it doesn't sound super radical, but it would be good to remember that the people that killed Jesus, they killed him because he was a threat to their systems. They killed Jesus because he was messing with their stuff, he was a threat to their loyalties to their way of life. He befriended outcasts. No, no, right? He made tax collectors into his disciples, his closest disciples, which was a ding-dongy thing to do, okay? The the tax collectors were literally betraying their own people. You know what? Join my team. I mean, he befriended women. The horror, right? He treated them as equal. I mean, he did all of these things that were so counter to everything that would have been expected of a Jewish rabbi teacher. All these different things, and his harshest criticisms, all of his harshest criticisms, were reserved for the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders of the day whose loyalties to the systems and the patterns of this world, the peace, listen closely, the peace that they had made with giving themselves to corruption and to abuse and to self-preservation, and all of those different things, all of that had made such a mockery of God, the God that they claimed to serve, and his harshest words were for them. You're not telling our story, is what he's saying. Me, the Father, the God, the Holy Spirit, you're not telling our story, you're telling some other story. You're building some other narrative. Jesus' very life, his very message was the sword. The sword. It was the sword. See, Jesus did not stay in a sanitized manger. In fact, King Herod, at the time Jesus was born, heard that some other king had been born in his kingdom. And his false peace that he'd made with his position of importance and power and influence and all that stuff, it was threatened. Some other king has been born. Wait a minute, I'm the king. I'm the king of this castle. I sit on this throne. What do you mean there's another king that's been born? He was so freaked out, he ordered that all male babies be killed. That's how threatened he was, that his kingdom would be taken. But Jesus didn't stay in the manger. He didn't even stay in the nativity scene. Later, Mary and Joseph, they'd take him to the temple where this old man named Simon would see him, would see this child. This is what he said, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. Listen, at Christmas, we do not worship a passive Savior. He's not a passive Savior in in a manger. He dethrones illegitimate kings. That's what he does. And he does that in our hearts and in our lives, too. Because without dethroning those illegitimate kings those illegitimate loyalties that we have, those allegiances, without dethroning those things in our lives, you and I will never have true peace. We'll just never have it. Real authentic communion with God. Real authentic connection and communion with other people. It's impossible if we reside on the throne of our life. He shows God's radical love. Jesus shows God's radical love for all people, and then he invites us to love God and love others the same way he does. He invites us into that, and the reason that this is threatening the reason Jesus warned his disciples, the reason Jesus calls this an act of the sword is that to be in right relationship with God, to be in right relationship with others, to be at real peace, making, means taking other things off the throne of our lives, allowing the prince of peace then to actually inhabit that space. That's what's needed. So listen, just as Herod was threatened, every single one of us, every single one of us, is threatened by a Jesus who does not stay in the manger. <laughs> a Jesus that stays in the manger is sweet, and we can sing songs about him and take him out of his little box, put him in our, on our mantle, put him back, you know, all that kind of good stuff. But we're threatened by a Jesus who does not stay in the manger. His mission is to dethrone whatever is on the throne of your life. Because that is not giving you peace. It's not giving you peace. The problem of the peace that Advent eludes to is this. To experience the peace promised by the Prince of Peace, it means allowing Jesus to divide you from that throne. That's what's required. Later in, in Matthew chapter 10, just a couple of verses later, 38 and 39, this is what Jesus says. Not long after he says this, this is what he says. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So this time his metaphor is not a sword, is it? It's a cross. Making up a cross, sacrificing self, putting aside your own desires, uh, putting Christ first, not yourself. Merry Christmas. Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks ago, I shared with you about actually another Jesus that had been stolen. Um, In August of 2003, thieves broke into the Church of the Holy Cross in Manhattan and some thieves stole the statue of Jesus off of a cross in the foyer. It's like a little prayer box and stuff, but they took Jesus off the cross. They found him and and returned him, but the newspaper was interviewing the janitor uh, and curator at the the church, and uh, the janitor said this, I don't get it. If you're going to take Jesus, you take the cross too. (laughs) But I think that's indicative of our culture, isn't it? We like Jesus, but he can keep the cross. Is that indicative of us? We're the church. We're the church. The Prince of Peace has come to divide us from the reign, our reign, in our own lives, and then have us join him in selfless service to God, selfless service to others. That is where real peace comes from. That's a hard sell. I admit that. It is, a, it is a totally hard sell, particularly if you're struggling today with a lack of peace in your own life. But the paradox of Christianity is this it's the person who gives up their life, who lays everything down, who's going to find real peace. I learned a long time ago I'm not a very good God. <laughs> I don't make the right decisions, my motives aren't always pure. My heart isn't always true. God is a good God. God is a good God. And it is the person who gives up their life, who lays everything down before that good God, who then begins to actually experience real peace. Real peace. Jesus has come to ask for our full allegiance. And that is going to cause division. It'll cause division in you, And it also causes division in our world. Uh, So during this season, as we continue to move towards Christmas Day, would you remember that peace comes only when Jesus kind of is allowed to leave our wrapped up narratives for him? He came as a threat to every illegitimate king, including every illegitimate ruler in our lives. That includes ourselves. Ourselves. A good reminder, I think, as we prepare to come to the table, representing what we have through His grace and what He went through to give us that grace and that peace. Um, The next time we celebrate communion together after today will be on Christmas Day. Uh, Originally, and maybe you saw some publication, that um, we were not going to have an in-person service on Christmas Day. But um, after some thought and some prayer, Um, you know, and some reconsideration, I think it's actually really important, and uh, we're going to have a, just a simple special service here at 11 o'clock on Christmas Day, very simple, we'll have communion together, we'll celebrate the birth of a Savior, Uh, it's Christmas Day on Sunday, and uh, I'd love to have you join one service at 11 o'clock, but uh, as we prepare for uh, communion today, can I read this for us? Who is invited to the Lord's table? All. The young and the old, the rich and poor, the lowest and least, come find your place here where there are no strangers or foreigners, only brothers and sisters. Why do we give thanks at this table? We give thanks because Jesus showed us the way and is the way. Emmanuel, God with us. He came to save us from our sins. Jesus lived a life of thankfulness and gave his life as a sacrifice for many. We give thanks that he is our Savior, Christ the Lord. Why do we eat and drink at this table? We eat because on the night before Jesus died, he ate with his friends. He gave them bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the same meal, he took a cup and said, drink this cup, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the ushers, if they would, to come down to their stations. Uh, this is um, what is being offered today on this table is for you. If you profess a faith in Jesus Christ today, we want to invite you to come and participate in this meal. Um, I'm going to step down in, in just a second, and as, as I do, each of the ushers is going to dismiss. You'll, these two sections will come to the middle and come up and then go back around These two sections in the balcony will come down this aisle and then back around in the same over here. Um, Can I pray for us? And then I'll close everything at the end. God of grace, thank you for this meal and for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. God of hope, would you fill us with your spirit today that we might have the wisdom to understand the mystery of this table, the depth and the height and the breadth and the length of your love for us. Through this meal, would you strengthen us to be followers of Jesus, a community of peace in a broken world? It's in Jesus' name. Amen.